So as Matt said, our reading today is Acts chapter 8, and we are going to read verses 1 to 8, and then skip over to verse 26. And we, that's on page 1099 of the Bibles on your chairs. And we are beginning a little bit of the way through verse 1 with the title, The Church Persecuted and Scattered. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And then moving to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Well, how are you going with Acts? We've come a fair way into the series now, and uh, you're following it and getting the flow of how that church has been, how Jesus has been growing his church, Uh, all sorts of little side um, issues and, and ways. We've got to a a pretty significant point uh, where there's trouble, big trouble, uh, for the church. 
And uh, Acts chapter 8, I think for Luke, Luke is trying to show to us um, how to handle that sort of trouble when we're faced with uh, an overwhelming surge of opposition. So uh, let's pray and then we'll have a look at uh, what he's got to teach us. Gracious Father, we, we thank you for your guidance, your, your direction, your reassurance, your empowering and your control, all of those things. Sometimes we lose sight of them. Sometimes we, um, in our humanness, fall back on thinking that it's not working because we're not doing well enough or that we've left something out. We pray that you'll teach us today how it is that your, your church works properly and successfully and who is behind it all. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So um, we didn't read it, but the very first little bit in chapter 8 it was also a bit of last week. It sort of matches with both passages. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul approved of their killing him. That was Stephen, of course. But it was just the start of this huge explosion of persecution for this little church, this early church. And sometimes when we're under pressure like that, and in some parts of the world our brothers and sisters are, of course, uh, then things pop into our minds that we wouldn't have uh, sat down and philosophised about necessarily, but we just pop in. Things like this. Well, look, if the world's majority either deny God or ignore him, is he, is he really still in control? Those ultimate plans that he outlines in his word, are they still on track? Does Jesus get involved in our lives much anymore? Is he at all interested in the detail of our lives? As we see increasing levels of persecution of Christians across the world, does that mean we're losing the spiritual battle? Ever had those sort of thoughts pop into your mind? Maybe just briefly and they're gone? I think if you're honest, maybe you have. I have. We, uh, Kathy and I, uh, had a really interesting um, experience last Sunday on the way home from church. And I just thought I'd share it with you. We, uh, we simply, we were practical. We dropped off at one of the shopping centres um, at Norwest, out Norwest of Sydney. Um, I waited in the car. Kathy went in to get a couple of things and bring them back. And as I'm sitting there, this lady appeared at the window, a young lady about 35, um, and said, do you think, I think because I had grey hair, I looked safe, <laughs> she turns up, Would, could you give me a, uh, a lift to the women's refuge in Castle Hill? Uh, well, uh, what's happening here? And so I thought quickly, as we males are able to do sometimes, <laughs> and I thought, uh, I'll just wait till my wife comes back. <laughs> uh, this is thinking, I didn't say it to her. So I'll wait and I'll just have a word to, to Kath and see if that's going to work out okay. So she went off to do something else. Kathy came back. I told her what had happened. And then the, when, the, when the girl, Amanda, her name is, when she came back, we said, yeah, fine, we can, we can drop you around to the women's refuge. Now, we discovered on the way that she was from Mildura, uh, that she had got into a relationship which had proved to be pretty awful. Her partner had started um, hitting her, so she'd escaped from that context. She'd come down to Sydney. She'd, uh, she had no family anywhere. 
She couldn't contact her friends because her partner also, they were friends of him and he would then know where she was. Uh, so she was in a bit of a state. And as we talked further, she, she told us she was 17 weeks pregnant uh, and nobody around to support her. Um, and then she said, and, and yet she seemed to be pretty well in control of, of what was going on. She said to Cathy, so what have you been doing this morning? And Cathy said, well, we just, we've just been coming back from church. And she, her eyes lit up. She said, are you Christians? And Cathy said, yeah, we are. She said, I became a Christian two weeks ago. Um, born again Christian, she said, in one of the Hillsongy type churches up in Mildura. Um, and um, and uh, I've just so much thanked God for uh, changing, beginning to change me the way he is. Do you think there's a local church that I could attend? Do you know how far away they are? Can I walk there? Those were the sort of questions that she asked. So we took her to the place, saw that she got a warm welcome there, and we went home. On the way home, we, we said to each other, you know what, um, God has placed us in that particular spot at that particular time, in those particular circumstances, because he's looking after one of his brand new uh, family members. Now, that might sound a bit, you know, uh, but it's true, isn't it? And he knew the detail. He knew where a couple of other of his family members were at the time. He said, I'll send them to Chris and Kathy this time. Other times they may well have sent them to you. But it said to us, God is very much still involved in the lives of his people and in the detail of their lives. And Luke wants to teach us similar things in chapter 8 in the face of what was just a, an enormously awful situation for these Christians to face. Have a look at verse 1 to 4. In these four verses... There are two what we might call breakouts happening at the same time. Satan has broken out upon the church via Paul and his associates. Um, he's figuring, I'll stamp this out as quickly as I can and um, prevent Jesus from getting any further. That's part of his master plan. This is an example of how he works. Splinter the church, persecuted hard, scare the individual members so they won't take any actions, positive actions, separate them from each other, put them under as much stress as he possibly can, make them crack, make them yearn for the old days when they weren't Christians and didn't have all these issues to deal with. And um, this is such a bad persecution. Well, Luke says it's a great persecution. That's how he, not great in the sense of this is great, but you know what I mean. This is a great persecution. This is a very solid persecution going on. They had to leave their homes. They had to um, escape to Judea and Samaria. And a little light goes on. Judea, Samaria, where we heard that before. We'll come back to that in a minute. We might ask ourselves today, has anything changed since then? For somebody who uh, most Australians claim don't, doesn't exist, Satan is still having a devastating impact across the world on our brothers and sisters. Over 60 countries currently persecute Christians. Seems to be growing. 70% of all persecution happening is against Christians. Millions are being persecuted worldwide. Thousands are currently in prison. Tens of thousands are purported to die 
every year simply because they name and confess the name of Jesus. And I know that level of persecution doesn't happen in Australia, but Satan is just as ready to use his, what we might call, subtle plan as he is in applying his brutality plan. He's got lots of plans that he's happy to use. And Paul, though he's unaware at this particular time that he's doing Satan's bidding, he actively sets out to destroy this infant church. And Luke uses the word vicious for the way Paul goes about it. Vicious. In his vicious treatment of any Christian household he finds, Satan no doubt felt he was successfully shutting down this infant church and blocking the rule of Jesus in people's lives. But his plan for destruction, his breakout for destruction fails because Jesus also has a plan which is to grow his church. That's why verse 4 is so significant to Luke and he doesn't want you and me to miss it. While Satan is viciously persecuting, Jesus breaks the gospel away from any chains which could possibly hold it in. Remember how he'd said to the apostles, he'd put them under orders, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Well, here he is, making it happen by giving the church a push. Off you go. And these Christians, yes, they'd been scattered, uh, but they had not been restrained. Instead of being contained or, or destroyed, wherever they go... They gossip the gospel in the markets, getting food, down by the river, washing their clothes in the river, walking from this place to that place. They talk to people about their faith. And the growth of a church begins to accelerate. What had for Satan been um, an opportunity to shut things down, actually, through Jesus' um, work, was opening things up. In Syria and Iraq at the moment... New people are becoming Christians, often they're Muslims, become Christians, because they've watched their Christian friends and neighbours either get beaten or imprisoned or even killed in some circumstances uh, rather than give up their faith. They've seen the loyalty and the love that their friends have shown and that witness has attracted them to the Lord Jesus. So that among many of of today's really severely persecuting countries, the church is growing steadily under God's uh, guiding hand. Now, I don't don't want to make this sound too simple. It's not simple at all, is it? But but we're talking principles. Uh, Persecution is an awful thing wherever it happens. um, And people are suffering terribly. But there are principles which we know to be true in the midst of these sorts of situations. And that's what Luke is sharing with us. It's like he's holding up a big flashing sign, a neon sign which is flashing the words, Jesus' church is unrestrainable. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's witnessing. You cannot overcome the plans that Jesus has made. And we ask why? The reason is because he holds sovereign authority, not only over everything, but particularly over his church. He is always going to have the final say. And the other reason is because he loves his church. 
Um, I'm going to jump into chapter 9 very briefly. So whoever's preaching chapter 9, excuse me for a minute. Uh, you can do it again next week. That's all right. Chapter 9, when Paul's on his way to Damascus, do you remember and Jesus confronts him with the lights and things and, and talks to him? Do you remember what he says? We would expect him to have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? But he doesn't. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a real insight there, isn't there? Um, that's the measure of how closely Jesus identifies with us as his people, completely. Paul says, the, the, the converted Paul later says, he's the head of the church, which is his body. And he loves and cares for it. So as well as empowering it and resourcing it, like we saw in Acts chapter 2, he champions it and he protects it. So, what is the word to the church under persecution? It is, God is sovereign and he has it under control. And Satan cannot hold back what Jesus pushes forward. The second thing's in verse 5 to 24. We didn't read a lot of that, but um, we could have a quick look on the way through. There are two main characters here. One is Philip, introduced in verse 5, and the other is Simon, introduced in verse 9. They both respond to hearing the word of God, but they have very different motives. Philip, he's like Stephen, who, remember, was the first Christian martyr recorded. We, we saw when Matt uh, shared chapter, chapter um, 6 and 7 last week. He's one of the seven elected in chapter 6. Their job was to administer the financial uh, admin stuff, make sure everybody got enough food, etc. But we also know that he's one of those who was scattered. And as he went, he preached in all these various places. And he went down into Samaria. Um, he, he really accepts his priority is to uh, bring Jesus' honour by being obedient in his witness and being ready to accept directions from God's spirit when they come. And so he makes himself available. And because he makes himself available, um, Jesus births the first Samaritan church, which grows under the preaching of the gospel by Philip. And then we may, this is an educated guess, through the Ethiopian eunuch who, that he leads to Christ, he may well have birthed a church in Ethiopia as well, in very significant part of the, the royal household. Because he was available. That's Philip. What about Simon? Well, Simon has a motive which is poles apart from Philip's. It looks the same in the beginning. It says that he also responded to the preaching of the word and became a Christian. But it then, as the passage goes on, it qualifies what that meant. Uh, John, um, one of the great commentators, uh, said that he thinks um, Simon is somewhere between Philip and a non-Christian. That's sort of funny territory to be in, isn't it? But as you look at the, the uh, account here, there's a big question about the genuineness of his conversion. And in the end, you have to say, he is actually now a very dangerous man. And the reason is, he appears actually, to have an unchanged heart, but he now has a Christian veneer. 
So people look at him and say, oh, he's a Christian. But actually, he's not. He has different ideas altogether. He, um, verse 18 and 19 suggests that he used to have a lot of kudos when he did signs and wonders previously before Philip turned up. He wants to regain that kudos this time by doing things like, you know, if I can, if I can hand out the spirit of God to people, how wonderful will they think I am? And Peter sees that and he calls him to account and challenges him to repent because, as he says in verse 21, your heart is not right before God. You are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Two men, typical of groups of, of the, that time, um, are directed by the Lord Jesus uh, in terms of honour. Philip is directed to bring honour to Jesus. Simon is directed to bring honour to Jesus, but brings it to himself. When somebody is prepared to give honour to Jesus, God's sovereignty directs incredible results flowing out of that obedience. You put yourself ready and available to God, he will do things with you that you have never done before. Well, let's look at the last little bit. Uh, starting with verse 14 to 17 and then 26 to 40. Um, there's two huge strategic advances uh, outlined in the rest of chapter 8. First one in verse 14 to 17, because there the Samaritans get included in God's kingdom. Now, uh, we're used to that, we, we know that, uh, but if you could put yourself back in those days... That is such an incredible jump to occur. The breakout for chapter 8 that's reached Samaria through men like Philip. Um, we know there is a mutual hatred between the Samaritans and the, and the Jews. It's been there for probably a thousand years. It's historical, it's religious, it's a mixture of everything. So they just don't talk, they have nothing to do with each other. So when, when in the Gospels... Um, uh, they talk about Jesus confronting the, the woman from Samaria. The, there are all sorts of expectations there and surprise the fact he actually talked to her because normally you wouldn't. We know that it's like that. So the question is, how do you break that hardened sentiment down? How do you show that the Samaritans are now included with the converted Jews on an absolutely equal basis? How do you get rid of that historical and religious background that has um, fired them up towards each other? Now they've accepted the word of God, they've believed, they've been baptised, but as Luke points out, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts chapter 2, when people believed, God sent his spirit, there were tongues and fire and, and everything just to show this is an incredible event, take note of it. God is empowering you for your ministry, but this didn't happen here. Not until, that is, Peter and John, hearing what was going on in Samaria, came down to check it out and see if it was genuine. And when they did, they saw the genuineness of people being, being, becoming Christians and they prayed that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us there were tongues of fire and the sound of wind and languages, etc. here, but 
what he's saying to us is the gift from Jesus to the Samaritan church is exactly the same as the gift he gave to the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And how important was it that that be very, very clear? Look, it's not talking about a two-stage conversion. It's not talking about second blessings. It's nothing about that at all. It's about showing, without any doubt, to the two groups and the groups beyond them, that the Samaritans were truly included, genuinely equal to, and unbreakably united with the Jewish Christians by faith in Christ. They weren't two separate churches. You imagine what a problem that could have been. They were one church in common fellowship, a common belief under the leadership of the apostles who had come down to verify them. And, and actually, if you, if you pushed it further into Acts, in Acts chapter 10, um, there was a similar delayed reaction of the receiving of the Holy Spirit when the Gentiles received the gospel. And again, it was to show that not only are the Samaritans in equally, but now the Gentiles are in equally too. In other words, um, at the end of, of uh, chapter 10, you're left in no doubt there's not a country, not a race, there's no people in all the world who cannot equally be part of Jesus' church. And that was just something that needed to be gotten over and accepted and welcomed with joy. The second thing, we close on this, is in verse 26. Um, uh, Philip's um, detailed involvement with the Ethiopian eunuch, you can just see how uh, the Spirit leads him in detail at every point. Do this, now do that, now go here. There's another advance going on here. Because, you see, the, this, um, this Ethiopian, he was from an area, maybe we'd call it the Upper Nile today. He was black. He was a eunuch. He was the Queen's treasurer. He probably worked for the Queen Mother. Probably Jewish, either by birth or by converting. But, you know, he'd come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem... When he got to Jerusalem, because of Old Testament law as a eunuch, um, he wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices there. Uh, he would have been restricted from entering certain parts of the temple and all because he was a eunuch. In other words, he, he couldn't involve himself in the proper worship um, at the temple there. He was an outcast. But in Luke's eyes... He represents another group of people who are spiritually open and obviously searching for the truth, but who were socially outcast in some way or another. Luke's point is, you are not outcast in this new church that Jesus is building. There are no outcasts in Jesus' church. Yes, in, in human community, we might... People might see uh, others that way, but not in the church of Jesus. Philip had made himself available to serve Jesus. And the Holy Spirit had led him, gave him detailed instructions. He listened and he acted. The Ethiopian was convicted by God. He went back to what Luke might describe as the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Where he lived, no doubt, as a powerful witness. And so... The Samaritan account and the Ethiopian account both end the same way. Did you notice as we went through? Verse 6. For the Samaritans, 
there was great joy in that city as people started coming to Christ. In verse 39, for the Ethiopian eunuch, he went on his way rejoicing. Joy is always the end result of people coming to know Christ. When we drove back from the reef refuge on Sunday, we were joyous at the fact that he was God looking after this young girl. We just keep praying for her now that she'll keep going forward. Now we know, we know, don't we, that, that Satan and any hope of his ultimate victory in the world, they were defeated by Christ on the cross and by, through his resurrection. He's, he's been defeated, but he certainly fights serious skirmishes, put it that way, actively and constantly. When the smoke of this particular conflict settled, when it cleared, it's Jesus and his church who have found standing firm and moving forward. He's brought victory, he's brought remarkable growth out of what looked like defeat. He's stirred many, many people to turn their attention away from themselves and to rejoice in bringing honour to him. He's assured every race, every culture, every nation that he welcomes them equally by faith into his church. And we were reminded of that, Cathy and I were, last Sunday. In other words, he is doing it still today. You'd have your stories. If we had time, you could come and share them. But I just finished by asking these questions. Is there any hint in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 8, in Luke's account, that God has lost control of his plan? Is there any suggestion there that he no longer cares for his church? Is there any thought that if we make ourselves available to him, he won't use us to build his church further? There's a challenge. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for every reminder that you are active and is equally concerned and intentional about what you're doing in the world today as you were back then. Thank you for Luke's account and the many witnesses that um, encourage us and reassure us. Put us in a position where we can reassure one another that you are sovereignly doing what needs to be done and including us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.